Welcome to the Learn, Lead, and Thrive podcast, part of the 2017 National Association of Chronic Disease Directors President's Challenge. I'm your host, Dr. Mehul Dalal, and today we're going to be talking about representational groups with our guest expert, David Berg, clinical professor of psychiatry and organizational psychologist with the Yale School of Medicine. I'm going to let David provide a more formal definition of representational groups, but I can say that if you start to understand the concepts we cover today, you will earn a cutting perspective on everything our field has been trying to do around internal and external coordination and collaboration. We're also going to do an experiment and have a little fun suggested by David himself. In the second half of the show, we will review a couple of case examples of scenarios we might encounter and let David respond by offering his perspective on those scenarios. I had the privilege of benefiting directly from David's expertise when he was part of the core faculty of a fellowship program I went through years ago. His case-based approach to instruction was remarkably effective in leading us into deeper insights about organizational behavior and organizational dynamics, all from seemingly mundane details about organizational life. And I, I don't know if David will recall this, but I remember an experience where we looked around a room and noticed some of the artifacts and decorations on the wall. And we came to some very interesting insights about our own organization just by looking at the artifacts that were represented in the room. So it is really interesting to learn from his perspective. So I'm looking forward to reconnecting with him today and to share his insights with you, the listeners. David, welcome to the show. Is there anything that you want to add in that introduction? Thank you. No, I do remember those moments well, and they're the highlight of my teaching careers when something unforeseen turns out to be very fascinating and insightful. That's great. So I thought it might be helpful to set the stage for our listeners. Can you define what characterizes a representational group, how such groups differ from other types of groups, and give us a few examples? Well, in the extreme, all groups are representational groups. Where we often treat them as if they are interpersonal groups. That is where people are just representing themselves, their personality, their, the way they act, their, the roles they like, whether they're funny or, or a dour. But most uh, groups, uh, as I was saying a minute ago, all groups are representational in some form. The simplest example is when you bring a group of people, each of whom comes from a different department together to work either across departments or cross-functional group, different functions, or an interprofessional group bringing those groups together, they're definitely representational because either formally, that is, the people are in the group because they represent the interests or perspective or wishes of a particular group, or implicitly, that is, people see them as representing a group, whether or not they're explicitly there to represent that group. So, for example, I'll give you an example of both kinds. Let's say you have an interprofessional healthcare team, a nurse, a PA, a physician working on a healthcare team. The explicit mm -hmm. representational dynamics are the three professional groups I just described. The implicit representational dynamics might include there might be two women and a man. There might be an African-American and two white people, be somebody 56 and somebody 32. Those are implicitly representational dynamics because there are some ways in which we will relate to each other based on the groups to which we belong even though those groups may not be explicitly a part of the function of the group. Uh, that, that's interesting. So in terms of the implicit representation, uh, we might get into this a little bit more detail later, but I think one of the things you talk about in your paper, which hopefully we can share with our listeners, is the fact that implicit representation may not even be something that the, the group member is aware of that's being sort of foist upon them in some way. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Oftentimes people see us as belonging to groups correctly or incorrectly when either we don't see ourselves as members of those groups or we don't think that the membership in those groups is relevant to the task at hand. This happens in every organization I've ever seen. The classic example of, of the female medical student who is considered to be a nurse by, by a patient. She doesn't consider herself a nurse. She isn't a nurse. But yeah. the fact that the patient sees her as a nurse because of the gendered nature of, of roles in our society can influence the relationship between the two of them. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Now, walk back a little bit. I know that you mentioned that all group representational. On the other end of the spectrum, what is an example of something that's not necessarily would commonly be seen as a representational group, just, just to draw well, the contrast? Well, most teamwork on supporting team dynamics assumes that the people in the group are, quote-unquote, the same. They're except for whatever interpersonal variation there may be. So when you talk about being groups work effectively by setting up guidelines or not interrupting or setting ground rules, you are implicitly assuming that the only thing that's relevant in that five- or six-person group are the interpersonal dynamics among the different mm. styles, et cetera. So if you've ever seen the self-assessment tools, the Myers-Briggs, yep. um, the learning styles, what those do is they say, well, what, what differentiates people are these individual characteristics. And <clears throat> what we need to do to manage these groups effectively is to manage the interpersonal or personal and interpersonal dynamics. This is the way groups are thought about, seen, and trained and managed in organizations. I, of course, as you know from reading, think this is a quite limited view of groups, all groups, because most groups exist because people coming into those groups come from a different place. Otherwise, you wouldn't need the group. Unless it's just labor, which it rarely is, I need to staple envelopes and five people doing it cuts the yep. time by, you know, significantly. If it's if it's a real group to do some decision-making or some problem-solving, it usually exists in or precisely because people have different things to contribute to it. And those things, whether it's perspective or skill or, or, or uh, history, those things come from what I would call other groups to which we belong. Yeah, I, I really appreciate what you said about the, the personality-based assessments and understanding your role in that way. I think that sort of work is pretty pervasive, certainly in the public sector, I imagine also in the private sector, that's been pretty widely used. It struck me as limited. You know, it can be helpful to understand different, you know, different styles and interpersonal styles, but it did strike me as limited in some of the work we do, particularly as we not just work on partnerships and groups and collaborations within the walls of our agencies, but a lot of our work involves working in, in partnership with community agencies, other, you know, sister state agencies, non-governmental organizations, healthcare organizations. So it's that sort of assessment may not be as useful in those cases. And I think hopefully we'll get a chance to dive into some of that later. Yeah. I wanted to yeah. move on to this idea, particularly resonated with me, this idea of, uh, of some of the key tensions that are inherent representational groups, you know, the mission of the team versus the representation of part of the department or area that individual is coming to the team with. So there's kind of this dual role phenomenon. Yeah, I mean, all representational groups have at their core this tension between the representation of the function, department, organization, and its interests, its perspective, what it wants out of the collaboration, and also being the set of people who have to uh, embody the collaboration itself. And embodying the collaboration, they also have to 
embody what the overall objective is, the one that transcends the different the different groups that are present. And because if they don't, if, if they don't hold that transcendent objective, then nobody will. But by right. the same token, they're coming from a place. And in most cases, they're sent there to represent that particular perspective on the overall objective. So it's a real tension. And my, as you know, my view is that, that this tension is something that you don't, you can't wish away. You can't say, gee, I hope when we all come in here, we'll all forget where we come from. I, I literally, I'll give you a small example. I was in a meeting and it was a meeting with lots of different people, lots of different parts of the medical school, different hierarchical levels, different functions, different departments. And it was supposed to be a discussion on the leadership of the of the school. And somebody said in the meeting, because the, a, a very high-ranking administrator was also in the meeting, stood up and said, let's just forget that this high-ranking person is here and let's talk honest. <laughs> now, that's a statement that says, let's just forget that people belong to the groups they belong to, in this case, yeah. a very high-ranking administrator. And that's a very common wish when people come into groups. The representation is so clear of hierarchy or function or tenure say, gee, I know this is going to cause a problem, but could we just pretend that we're not coming from different groups and move from there? And my answer would be, no, you can't. I mean, you can say the sentence, but the only way to manage those kinds of groups is to acknowledge and try to manage the fact that there is this tension rather than to wish it didn't exist or, by some statement, wish it away. Yeah, no, I, I can see what, that's pretty humorous. I think, you know, in my experience, it tends to get a little more confusing academic as people wish that that hierarchy wasn't there. But in, in the public sector, in public agencies, there's a long tradition of hierarchical sort of, it's pretty clear who's your boss, who's your subordinate. And it's kind of funny in academia that that's there, but not as, as rigid and explicit as it is in public agencies or perhaps in the private sector. So that's, so that's a funny example. Well, I it's, it's, I think, Another version of that is, and this has been in the public sector, the, there's evidence of this, that because of the difficulties that group memberships sometimes raise, people will say, could we just take off our parochial hat, think about the patient care? When people say, can we just, it's all about the patient. What they're yeah. really saying is, each of you has a different perspective. Could we all get rid of that different perspective and just <laughs> share a perspective called patient care or patient yeah. health? And it's the same thing. You, it, it is true that everyone cares about patient care, but they care about it from the perspective of the groups they come from, whether it's financial or scientific or public health. And to say, gee, can we all just can we all just come together and and worry about patient care, is as if it, those sentences are saying, could you not care about the particular thing you came in here caring about? Could we all somehow? pretend that those don't exist so we can get on with the shared task. And this is the tension. People do have the shared task in mind, and yeah. they also have the particular groups from which they were sent or from which they come. So interesting. It seems like, you know, in terms of representational groups, we we bring a confusing array of baggage to the groups. And we touched on this earlier, and I think your, your comment there just reminds me of it. You know, we, we're bringing in roll-ons, carry-ons, backpacks, grocery bags, purpose, you know, purses, whatever. You know, so I don't know, help us sort out this luggage. <laughs> like, how do we think about that? Well, I tend to think about it as normal and productive. The reason why, for example, collaborations between uh, organizations work is because each one of them is different, and each one of them brings a different skill or a different a benefit to the collaboration. 
so that if we didn't have people who were closely allied to the community, who had networks in the community for communication and information passing along, who couldn't, who couldn't feel the pulse of a community, when they're interacting with a governmental agency designed to help that community, the, the governmental agency would be less effective in its mission. By yeah. the same token, if the community organizations didn't have either the resources or the funding or the expertise to research some of the health care health issues that are facing the community, then the collaboration wouldn't be as effective. So what's normal about all this baggage is we have to pack those bags when we come together because otherwise we're not bringing anything to the party. We're not bringing anything that makes the collaboration more productive or useful than either of the actors by itself. So it's normal, not only normal, but we depend on people with different contents to those various pieces of baggage. The question is, once we bring those different kinds of baggage, they influence the way we see each other. And to, just to extend this metaphor too much, if I brought jeans in my bag and put jeans on you and you brought a tuxedo, you're thinking, gee, did I, did I overdress? And I'm thinking, right, gee, am right. I underdressed? And yeah. everybody then starts, you know, saying, well, this is not the way I see this party. And now we start arguing about the party because we're worried about what we brought to dress etc. We're going to bring different things. And the question is, how can we make a collaboration that, that encourages us to, to take out of our bags what's most useful and comes from our particular place? That's the challenge. And most of the time, we wish everybody didn't bring any bags or that, that what was in their bags was the same yeah. because the different bags make it troublesome to collaborate. But yeah, I, my that, point is, it's precisely the difference, what's in those bags, difference that makes the collaboration potentially useful. Yeah, I can certainly relate to that. I think there's many times that I've been participating in in collaborations and groups where it, on initial blush, you just don't understand why a certain person is part of that group. And then these are t typically kind of external groups that are thrown together. And then, then, you, then you come to understand their perspective is really different and really informative and can shape the way the shared task or the shared goal is approached. I'm right. always... Uh, well, I'm frequently surprised by that. I wish it happened more often, but I'm frequently surprised by how a different perspective can make the common you know, issue a little more, more interesting or inform a new approach and, to it. And what you just said, Mihul, is part of the dynamics of representational groups, which is when they come together, each group thinks it knows the whole thing. So it has trouble validating what another group's perspective is because it comes in relatively unaware of its limitations and much more aware of its strengths and yeah. less aware of the, of the strengths of the other groups and much more aware of its limitations. So we come into an interprofessional group, for example, thinking, well, if everybody just had my background, medical school, public health, whatever it is, we'd be fine yeah. here. And it's interesting because intellectually, if I gave you a pencil and paper test, you would support diversity for, in terms of its contribution to effectively functioning collaborations because if everybody's the same, you don't have a very effective collaboration. So you'd mark the, the number that said, yep, diversity is important for collaboration. And then when you got in the room, like the rest of us, you would say, I just wish people could be more like me because yeah. it would function better, or more like my department, more like my function. I'm in a finance function. If people just understood numbers better, yep. we'd, be, we'd be all right. The problem is, the reason you understand numbers so well is because you were selected to understand numbers, trained, hired into the organization. And the reason why the, the public health person understands public health and doesn't think much about numbers is because that's the way they were trained. And that training allows us each to be a little better than if everybody had to be everything. But it creates some uh, tensions when we try to collaborate 
because we're seeing this elephant, to use the metaphor, from different points of view. Yeah, hopefully this will come out in the cases, but I just wanted to mention potentially kind of pra practical tip on this. I find useful and maybe don't utilize enough is that when someone is asking for my input, it, it seems obvious they may be asking for it from the perspective of my role, but I often, when there's potential for confusion or potential for sort of lack of clarity of where my perspective is coming from, I often preface my input by saying, you know, from the chronic disease unit's perspective, you know, blah, 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 X, Y, Z, this is what I'd be thinking. Because we, we often find ourselves wearing different hats or at least it may not be clear to other people what hat we're wearing when we say something, whether we're representing the department as a whole, whether we're, we're representing our little unit in it, whether we're representing expertise. So I often find it useful to, to kind of do that prefacing. I, I, think that's extreme, I think that's extremely important. I think if everyone did that, you go a long way towards at least being able to manage the representational dynamics and tensions we were just talking about. Yeah. Before the breakout, I wish we had a lot more time to discuss some of these kind of more nuanced issues because I think they come up so much. But I did want to talk about one that I found interesting in terms of representational dynamics. You know, feel, feel free to talk about this or a, another important aspect of it. But I thought the idea of intergroup histories was really interesting in terms of explaining some of the relationship dynamics that go on in representational groups. Can you expand on that a little bit you know, around intergroup yeah, history? The notion that, um, that groups often involve interactions between representatives of groups means more often than not that these are groups that are known to the participants. And that means they're groups that have existed for a while. And so that means when you come to a representational group, not only do you come with the interpersonal histories that people have, you know, I know that guy from for 10 years, but you also come with the intergroup histories. That is, there's a history, uh, take the example I just gave before about um, an interprofessional team with nurses, doctors, and physician associates, PAs. Those groups have a long history with each other. So when people walk in the room and I know what group you come from, I have in my mind what both what the recent history is, whatever we've done together, but also the long history. And depending upon, especially if you're one of the lower power groups in that interaction, you are very aware of the long intergroup history between your group and the other group. You know what the history has been of trying to get meetings with these people. You know what the history of, uh, of mild abuse or mild uh, dismisses, dismissive behavior is. You come into any meeting very much aware of the history of what's been going on between the two groups. And even if we are not aware of it, because some of us in, in the up groups, the, the more powerful groups in any relationship, may not be as aware of the history, it influences what goes on in the room, even if we're not terribly aware of it, because it's influencing the other groups and because it's in us, even if we're not uh, terribly conscious about it as a male walk into a walk into a group and whether I'm conscious of it or not, what I've learned about being a male and its relationship to females, just to, to pick a, an example, is gonna it's gonna influence what happens in that room. Or uh, you introduced me as a psychologist. When I walk into a room to teach anyone in the healthcare profession, but especially physicians, they all know I'm a psychologist. And whatever their experience is of psychologists, whatever they carry in their mind about psychologists, it's not the same as what they carry in their mind about physicians. So usually over the first some number of meetings with this group, if it's not explicit, 
we're dealing with the historical relationship between physicians mm-hmm. and psychologists. And I'll give one small story before the break. I work in a department of psychiatry, so I once asked the chair of a department years ago if he thought that my being a psychologist had any influence on my capacity to work with physicians in training. I had been, I had sat in a class for a semester where the uh, psychiatrist, psychiatry residents thought I was a psychiatrist. And uh-huh. they talked at one point about their relationship with psychology, which was, they thought, they didn't know I was a psychologist. So I heard how they talked about psychology. I heard about their skepticism about its scientific base. I heard about the interprofessional tension. So when I asked the chair that he thought my being a psychologist was going to influence my ability to work with, with residents, I had a hypothesis based on and my experience with this one group. And he, a psychiatrist, looked at me and said, oh, no. I don't think it'll have any impact whatsoever. I think all uh-huh. they care about is your competence, i.e. some individual characteristic that you bring. Yeah. And I think that's, that's what makes this a particularly difficult thing is because we do know, some of us are not easily able to see that these histories influence the interpersonal relationships that we have in small groups. Yeah. And my experience is they, uh, they do. Yeah, I have a feeling that in my observation, I think even taking the hierarchical piece out of it, which adds another layer of complexity, but again, from public sector, public agency work, you are departments or divisions have a long-standing history with other sectors of society. So let, let me just take an example. The Department of Public Health has often played a regulatory role in, with respect to healthcare organizations. And only more recently, maybe in the past 10 to 15 years, have we been taking a more active role in working in partnership with the healthcare industry, especially as it relates to chronic disease. And, you know, I have a sense, I can't always put my finger on it, but I have a sense that there's that sense that, okay, I'm coming from a, of a regulatory agency, the Department of Public Health. Why are they here asking me questions about how taking care of patients with chronic diseases? I feel like that may be coloring the interaction a bit. Oh, yeah. There was a piece of research done here, Natasha Ray and Karen Long, about the relationship between university researchers and community organizations. So it's a university town, and the university does research, healthcare research in the community. And so what they did was, they, using this theory, they had a university researcher interview university researchers, and they had a community um, organization member interview community organizations about their experience of these research relationships. And, and this whole notion of history was a very big deal for the community organization. Mm-hmm. And so they would say, you have to talk about history. And they would talk about Tuskegee. And they would talk about a long history of the relationship between medical research and community. And when you talk to the university researchers, they would say, I wish people would get over Tuskegee because I'm not like that. I don't Mm. do those sorts of things. Both groups um, talked about history. One talked about it as being alive and present, and the other talked about it as being uh, – they were aware of its history influencing the relationship but wished that it wasn't having the impact it was. So I think history is always present in relationships, and part of our work is to metabolize that history rather than to wish it didn't exist. Yeah. Oh, so interesting. I hope the listeners get a chance to delve deeper into that concept because there's so much there. We're coming up against the break right now. And uh, to recap, we've, we've covered representational groups, the definition of representational groups, representational dynamics, and we just 
finished a very interesting discussion about intergroup histories. So again, I hope that folks have a chance to dive into that. So when we come back, we're going to try our experiment. So stay tuned. Hi, this is Dr. Mehul Dalal with a quick break here. I know in the day-to-day -day bustle of work, it's not easy to study and apply leadership best practices. I also know that leadership is not about a particular individual who happens to be in a supervisory position. It's about working together to identify and cultivate these skills and capacities in each other and at all levels of the organization. Leadership skills should be foundational to all public health professionals as our field confronts change both from within and without. It's my hope that this year's National Association of Chronic Disease Directors President's Challenge, Learn, Lead, and Thrive, will draw attention to best practices, industry-leading thinking, and most importantly, practical advice on how to implement these concepts and techniques in our daily work. Please tune in to other episodes of this podcast where I talk with leading experts tackling important questions around professional development, succession planning, managing up, job satisfaction, and more. We've lined up exciting conversations with folks like Dr. Ursula Bauer, Dr. Gina Alonji, Dr. Mark Lipton, Professor of Management at the New School, Drs. Amy Rosniewski and David Berg, both professors at Yale, and Dr. Ross Brownson of Washington University. To access the podcast, go to the National Association of Chronic Disease Directors President's Challenge webpage found at chronicdisease.org, where you'll also find links and resources related to this and other podcasts in this series. Now back to the show. Okay, welcome back. Covered some of the key concepts related to representational groups, representational dynamics. And now we're gonna try something new and fun. I'm going to present some cases, fictional and dramatized, but they are inspired by true events. David, thanks for the suggestion. Are you ready to go with these cases? Sure. <laughs> All right. All right, case number one. The commissioner gets a call from a frustrated community partner who is a senior executive at a community health center. She relays to the commissioner that while she appreciates partnership with the department, she is disappointed by the lack of coordination. She received four separate requests from the department's staff for participation in quality improvement initiatives. One to address asthma, another to address diabetes, another to address hypertension, and yet another to address HPV, human papillomavirus vaccinations. She simply cannot afford to assign staff separately to each of these initiatives. She's willing to take on one initiative at a time. The commissioner calls you and asks you to handle the situation. You supervise each of these program teams that contacted her, which are the diabetes teams, the heart disease team, the asthma team, and the cancer team. And the initial feedback from the team leads is clear. The program funders are expecting progress on these objectives. The reporting deadlines are looming and continued funding is at stake. Recruiting this particular health center would be a big win for any of the teams. So you call a team meeting. So knowing what we know about representation and representational dynamics, how should we approach this situation? Yeah, so there are, there are a couple of things that come to mind when I think about this. First is the relationship between the commissioner the person who runs the four yes. disease teams yes. is the relationship between you and the community organization. That is this, this situation exists because the community um, organization probably doesn't understand what, what the various disease teams are facing on the ground. 
Mm-hmm. She sees them individually. She doesn't realize that they have a coordinated objective and that there are pressures on each of them to deliver team-wise outcomes. So the first thing I would do if I were in the leadership role would be to contact that community member to make sure that she understood that the funding for those different teams comes to each team and that uh, each team is uh, maintaining its funding so as to provide the kinds of services it needs to provide or the kind of research it needs to provide. The second thing I would do is, uh, in that meeting with the four disease teams, is to have an explicit conversation about their competition with each other, about the ways in which they are uh, struggling against each other because of the funding constraints uh, to get, quote-unquote, good sites in order to meet their their goals, objectives, funding requirements, et cetera. And then to begin to talk explicitly about whether or not this actually is a representational group, meaning there's a boundary around these four teams that is analogous to, as we've been talking about these these representational groups, that is, does the, do the four teams together have something that they're doing? Hmm. If they see themselves as doing it together, then that tension between the individual disease team and the, the health, the public health department is, can be engaged. At the moment, from the way you drive the case, it sounds like these four disease te- uh, teams and the representatives of them do not see themselves as interdependent. They don't see themselves as working on anything together. So that we don't have a representational group, we have four representatives of individual activities that are mm-hmm. incentivized or measured individually. We don't have that piece that says we're all in this together for some purpose, which sets up the key representational tension. So I would have to investigate as to whether there really is a reason why these four teams can, these four disease teams can and should work together. If they don't, then my task as the person running these is very different. I just got four teams each out for themselves, clawing in the environment, and that's going to create these kinds of situations over and over again. Mm. And under those conditions, for example, the way I suspect it's often resolved is which of those four teams has the greatest impact on the grant uh, in terms of financial grants, and that's the one I privilege in the relationship with the community organization. If, on the other hand, they are a team, that is, they're all working for the better health of this community, then my conversation begins with let's look at what we're trying to do here. Let's look at the pressures on each one of you. Let's mm-hmm. try to work together to help each of you meet some dimension of its pressures, it all depends on whether I can firm up the boundary around those four teams as having a shared goal, mission, uh, et cetera. Because only if we, in as the example we were using that all about the private sector, in the private sector, if I have four businesses, each contributing to the bottom line of the one business, the company, yeah. it's clear no matter what, no matter whether they come into that four person meeting thinking they're just representing you know, electronics or washing machines, that if, the, that if the company goes down, each one of these lines of businesses go down. Right, right. And, and that's what sets up the, inter, the, the intergroup, the representational tension. That is, I know I need to maximize my profits because that's how I get incentivized, et cetera, and promoted. But I also know that if the company goes down, then I'm out of a job. That's the tension. In this particular case, the question from the case is, is there some shared goal 
that holds these four teams together. If there is, then that's the, the basis on which I then talk about the representational pressures that are acting on each one of them to see if together we can find a way, for example, to approach this community organization as a group as opposed to as a series of individual pitches. Because it would be much more effective if you could uh, if you could approach this individual community uh, individual as a group. For example, in the way you've written the case, if uh, if she had one meeting with five yeah. people, the four teams and the leadership person, it'd be more likely that she could consider more than one more than one initiative. Because yeah. what she's saying is, if you come at me one at a time, it takes too much effort. There's too much commitment. I can't do it. But if all five people, four people came together and made one proposal to her and and had one contact person for her organization mm-hmm. and came back and then worked with the four different these teams, that would that might open the possibility that she could handle it from the resources on her side. But it, re- it requires the four disease teams to actually come together more than they're doing at the present moment. Yeah, I mean, I think this your remarks here speaks to the heart of the dilemma of some of the things that we've been contending with over the last few years in the chronic disease field. There's been a great push from our funders, a push from partners to say, you know, you guys have, are doing a lot of separate things and in separate ways that all, they all individually seem important, but really that, that all this effort needs to be coordinated to gain more leverage and make more impact. But the incentives remain fixed. You know, there's incentives on making meeting diabetes objectives, incentives on making heart disease objectives. So the challenge for us is how to make this shared goal seem more real, concrete, where, you know, everyone, everyone, again, I think I like your pencil and paper test analogy. If if everyone's given a test, teams, they would say, oh yeah, we want to contribute to the greater health and greater good of the state of Connecticut, in my case, or whatever state that they're working in. But they, they need to meet their own specific objectives and their incentives are going to be driven towards those objectives. So, so you can see that the solution to this problem actually lies at least one level up from where the case is written. Yep. That is, what's happening is that you've got a public health at the federal level or the state level. You've got a public, a public health enterprise that's incentivizing precisely the, the coordination that they then lament, right? Yeah. So if at the federal level people said, look, community health is community health, there are lots of dimensions to it, let's think about what kinds of incentives we want, we can make for people so that we're not pitting them against each other. That would require one level up at the federal level, the same question we just asked at the, at the state level, which is, do we have a shared task here, or is it just a set of disease-based silos that are setting their own objectives, which is not really caring about the community health, as much as if we said, gee, there are limited resources, we've got a community health problem that includes these, in our example, these four diseases, what do we do about that? Yeah. Then what came out of the federal level would, would begin to shape, just as it's doing now in the silo direction, would begin to shape a coordinated um, effort at the community level. But because it exists at a more disease-based level at the federal government, they then look at you and say, hey, can't you solve the problem we have at the federal level, at the state level, in order to make progress on this? And that's a tough order for the reason yeah. you said, which is, yes, we're, we're still got measures and, and incentives that are disease-based, and that makes it hard for us to collaborate with each other. Yeah, I think a lot, a lot of listeners will relate to that. So that was a great case. So thanks, David. I, uh, let's, we're 
getting pretty short on time, but I do want to hit the second case here because I think it brings out a different set of dynamics and then we'll wrap up after that. So case number two, you have been promoted and have started attending senior executive meetings in your division. You now report directly to the division director and are excited to learn he places a strong emphasis on senior team cohesion. He encourages open dialogue and healthy conflict among the senior team members. But another aspect of his team cohesion strategy seems to be to regularly disparage HR, human resources. And the senior team members are often goaded into sharing war stories about the dysfunction in the HR unit. You think there might be something to that because you recall having experienced delays and getting responses from HR in the past, but haven't been really directly involved in HR in any major way. You also participate in a department walking group, which includes a couple of employees from HR, and they seem perfectly reasonable and professional. So something about this does not sit well with you. How do we go about approaching and diagnosing what's going on and what can be done to address it? So, yes, you said we don't have much time. This is a great <laughs> case. Um, it's a great case because if if you imagine that in a small group that we've talked about before with just personalities, you often observe something called scapegoating, where an individual gets an individual is treated as if he or she is the only person with a problem that actually everybody else has, right? The same thing can happen with groups, with representational groups. That is, a group can be treated as if it has a problem that, and nobody else has it. So when I listen to this case, I hear a set of representational groups that believes that one of the groups is the source of a particular kind of problem. And they're likely to pick on a group that's, that has some vulnerability. So in, in most organizations, HR has a certain vulnerability because it's, quote-unquote, dealing with soft things, especially in a healthcare or scientifically um, evidence-based organization. The human being part, uh, the, the being concerned and caring and having to worry about policies, et cetera, can sometimes seem as soft and not part of the main mission. Yeah. The part that scapegoating is, in in this case, I'm assuming that every department has some dysfunction in it and that every department and every division has some gripes about the other divisions. But by, quote, unquote, ganging up on the HR folks, you minimize the tensions or problems between the other groups. In order for a group to become, in order for this group to become more effective, I think they'd have to look at the intergroup histories between all the various groups in the room, not just mm. HR. They'd have to begin to look at what the positive and negative aspects of all of their relationships were, which would reduce the using of HR as the repository for all problems, and yeah. would also would also make it more likely that the that the that the relationships between the other groups would improve as they began to identify where they needed to work on the quality of their relationship. That is the ways in which they have been frustrated by some other departments um, uh, collaboration or participation. Now I'm particularly, there's some projection in this, the closest, closest professional unit I have in this case is the HR unit. <laughs> and <laughs> I know what it's like to, uh, to, to be thought of as dysfunctional. Um, so uh, I may be overstating the case, but you can you can you can think about it in in another context. Lawyers and finance people are routinely yep. you know de demeaned in, in in quote unquote in production organizations because they're just yep. cost centers. They just say no to everything. 
it's hard to imagine that the legal people are, are there because they were hired by the senior executive group or the board in order to protect the exposure and liability of the organization. And it's hard to imagine that finance people were hired by the top of the organization to make sure that people who are not as well trained in finance don't give away the store because they have a great idea, but they're not thinking about its costs. But they are. They're, we're all hired in an organization to rep, to represent certain perspectives. And when that awareness breaks down, there's there's a potential for uh, scapegoating one or the other groups as being the only reason why we're not being as successful as we are. If they just wouldn't say no, or if they just wouldn't make us make 63 copies and take three weeks to look over our contracts, everything would yep. be fine. Yeah, I was using HR as a stand-in for any of the, the quote-unquote support functions. Exactly. Very vital. So exactly. we, we're we're running way over time, So, but this has been a great conversation, but I think we're going to have to wrap it up and up here. So thank you, David, so much for being our guest today. Are there any uh, closing remarks or closing comments for our listeners? Well, you're welcome. Happy to do it. I think it is a tall order to tackle a subject like this in 20 or 30 minutes. So I hope uh, you will put some things up on, on a website for people to follow up with if they're curious about. Yes, absolutely. That's part of the goal here is to link to important and interesting resources. So thank you so much again, Great. David, for, for joining. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in to today's Learn, Lead, and Thrive podcast. We covered some complex and, I think, lucrative conceptual territory. I was particularly intrigued by the concept of intergroup histories, which you ended up spending a lot of time discussing. So a lot of, lot of fun there if you if listeners want to dive in further. All bring interesting baggage to the groups that we work in. Most of the groups that we work in are representational groups, so this should be widely applicable in terms of our work. And it's really no surprise that the coordination and collaboration is a challenging undertaking based on what we've heard today. Don't feel discouraged. Try to apply some of these concepts and tech to, to the day-to-day work. It was also really interesting to have that, ex- that experiment with case examples. Maybe we might do that a little bit more in the future as a learning activity. And hopefully you will tune into this and other podcasts in this series. Thank you very much for listening.